Bardat, the Bar Ilan University podcast. In the age of Corona, reading and the humanities have come back into style. Remembering the humanities, why we all, including scientists, need to read with Professor William Kohlbrenner of the Department of English Literature and Linguistics. How has the humanities classroom changed during this period of Corona? As the restrictions lighten up, people are beginning to go back to their, their former lives. We see pictures at the beaches, everybody's swarming there. Um, and that's understandable. I, but w- one of the things that I wonder and that I'm hopeful about is that perhaps the humanities classroom and perhaps our culture in general will have changed after this trauma, have changed after this technological pause. I'm a humanities professor, which is why I asked that question. And I think for, for years now, for decades now, the humanities have been the um, kind of embarrassing family member that you have to keep along in the university complex or the university family. So we, need, we, we have to acknowledge her as our own, but we feed it only irregularly, and we certainly don't give her pride of place at the table. It's, sometimes I like to remind you, university administrators that the university was begun by humanists, by people who were involved in the humanities. And like it or not, the humanities is the core of every single thing we do, because the humanities is the beginning of skepticism and exploration, both of those things at the same time. Exploration, searching, finding out, also skepticism. And the sciences, who, which in many ways, I think in the contemporary university have become adjunct to the corporate world, have become kind of like technical schools. And it's really left to the humanities to remind us how to read. I have a class at Bar-Ilan, and Bar-Ilan has, I think, in a way, we have the best student body in the world. And what I mean by that is not the, not the highest level students, but we have students from all over the world. And we have in Israel, it's really like an oasis at Bar-Ilan, especially in the English department. It's an oasis where Christians and Jews and Muslims come together to study texts and through studying texts, actually being able to get to know one another. There is actually a relationship between knowing how to read and being a good teacher, knowing how to read and being a good friend, knowing how to read and being a good member of a corporate entity. Because reading is at the basis of everything that we do. Now, what's happened to the humanities? In Thomas Mann's Joseph and His Brothers, which I think is the great European novel, it's an incredible book. I just read it. It's 1,500 pages, longest book I've ever read, and I'm an English professor, right? So in in Joseph and His Brothers, which is really Mann's extended midrash on the story in, in Genesis, 
Joseph, Mons Joseph, rebukes his brothers after he's revealed himself, or maybe before he's revealed himself to them, he's asking about their father and finding about details of his life. And Joseph is disappointed to find out that some of what sounds like some of the details of Jacob's life, he's not living in the kind of luxury that, Jake, uh, that Joseph feels his father should. And Jacob turns to his brothers and says, have you no stories? Have you no learning? I love that combination, right? So Mons Joseph turns to his brothers and says, the way that we, act, the way that we learn is through stories. God did not write the Bible in binary code because it wasn't available to him, meaning binary code is good for a certain form of pragmatic communication. But there are other forms of communication, means of reading, which that binary code can't even begin to discover. In Shakespeare's most famous and greatest play, Hamlet, Hamlet as turns to Horatio. They're both studying at the university in Wittenberg. And Hamlet says to Horatio after he's seen the ghost, the ghost of his father, Hamlet says, there is more to heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy, my dear Horatio. So Hamlet is referring to all of the things that we can't know with a spreadsheet, that we can't put on an Excel sheet. Humanities are not data-driven. Now, why have the humanities been rejected? So many of the wounds of the humanities are self-inflicted. And I was at Columbia University in the 1980s. 1980s, was that was kind of the belly of the multicultural beast, meaning all of the professors in America who are, um, who are now kind of representing this current ideal of, let's say, literary theory and postmodernism and deconstruction. None of those words really mean anything without defining them very well. But there, what has happened is, is there is now a kind of postmodernist orthodoxy in the academy. And in that postmodernist orthodoxy, you can't really understand what somebody says because the author is dead. If you could possibly understood what the author is dead, well, first you would be suspicious of them because of their assumptions about race, class, and gender, which are of course important questions to ask, but it's not the first question you would ask. I said before that to be a good reader is to be a good friend. That's not how we behave with friends, right? We don't behave with friends and say, oh, I can't possibly understand what you say because your intention isn't accessible to me. And even if it was, you have so many Freudian and class stories in the, in the back of your mind that are informing what you do that whatever you say is really meaningless. That's the humanities today. So the, the and, and then there's another kind of, there. it has a kind of companion and that doesn't exist really so much in Israel, but definitely in America, the companion is this kind of very right-wing values humanities, meaning we're going, the humanities represent a certain message and that message goes with a certain kind of government, certain American values. And that's a misunderstanding of reading because reading is not about messages. It's about, it's about learning how to read. It's about, it's about learning. It's the process of reading, the process of reading through which I said before, we explore, but we do so, we do so skeptically. One of the things that's interesting in America today, I'm American, I'm Israeli, is that there's a certain kind of, multiculturalism is not the me metaphor today, but it's intersectionality. And intersectionality is, in theory, based upon the acceptances of differences, celebration of differences. But the problem with intersectionality is it has become such an orthodoxy that the, that differences has become 
not something, not someone who identify with whom is different, but we identify together as different in a way which rejects everybody else. So even though there is the celebration of the ideal of difference, that's there. There is no willingness to communicate with others. So you will see things. It's not hard to find this stuff in America where college students will say to somebody who's uh, speaking to them, don't you dare talk to me. Meaning, don't you dare talk to me, not because you're insulting me, but don't you dare talk to me because you're, giving, you're, you're expressing a perspective that I find offensive. And I don't, I don't want to converse with you because whatever, I'm woke and you're not, whatever the metaphors are. So in the name of the celebration of difference, this is another self-inflicted wound of the humanities, there's actually the rejection of difference. Reading assumes that there is an author there that, or speaker or an author or Shakespeare or Milton, and I want to understand, and this is, this, if I said this in 1980 in my um, classroom at Columbia, I would have been stoned. I want to understand their intentions, right? Now, that, that is not simple. But in order for me to do that, I have to have, again, these two, two movements at the same time. Um, not so much surrendering oneself, but making oneself present. Making oneself, giving a form of attention to something. I think a form of attention is one way of, one way of describing that is, is through love. And I'm talking about love as not romantic love, but love as a form of attention. Literary critics do it. Scientists do that. They, whatever they're looking at. They're, they, they, they're giving it attention, which means I want to understand you. I want to understand this. And that's the first step. And, and by the way, we do do that at bar I mean, it takes a very long time to do that. The first thing to do is to build up trust. The second thing to do is to be able to share, to make yourself present. Why wouldn't you want to make yourself present? Because everybody is defensive as hell, right? And that's why one of the things in a, a good humanities classroom will let people not be defensive. So I feel free to tell my story. And also, when I'm telling my story, I leave room for other people. But going back to that act of reading, it's that making, of, making myself present. Now, of course, I'm not naive enough to think that I can know exactly what the author said. And the truth is, and this is the, the dirty secret of the humanities that the scientists love to go at, the dirty secret is, is that for, in, for the humanities, and we believe this about everything, the world is only accessible to us through interpretation in scientific models, in social scientific models, in any model. All we have are our human representations. I'm not denying that scientific models are far more complex and far more accurate in some ways. Accuracy is not what we're, we're, we'll leave accuracy to the scientists. But having said that, all knowledge that we have is made possible for us or to us through interpretation. What's happened really since the 17th century is that there is a belief among scientists that the world is self-interpreting. The, the greatest theory, theoreticians of science back then and even now know this is not true. But there is an idea, Francis Bacon, the great writer of the early part of the 17th century, when he imagines the perfect metaphor for the mind, he thinks of it as a mirror. That is, the mirror the mind mirrors, let's call it, objective reality. I penalize my students when they talk about objective reality. It does not exist because the objective always, always, always is mediated through the subjective. It's always a question of interpretation. So when I go back and read, I mean, scientists will tell us that 
interpretation is something that humanists do. And if you really want to know the truth about the world, come to us, because we will give you an unmediated sense of what the world is. And, and the humanists, well, they're off in that subjective realm of representation. People have been saying this since the 17th century, by the way. It's not new, but it's really now tied to the sociology and the finances of the university. Because, we're, we're, again, we're, we're, the, we're the tolerated younger sister. So where scientists will say that the world is already interpreted, humanists come and remind us that we are always in the process of interpreting something. So when I read Milton, when I read Milton, I, I'm a Miltonist. Milton wrote the famous Palm Paradise Lost. When I read Milton, first of all, my assumption is that his intentions are not going to be so simple that I'll be able to understand them or render them simply. Meaning understanding or the belief that I can go back and get an, an intention of an author doesn't mean I think the author is stupid. It may mean that I mean, need many kinds of different contexts or many kinds of different languages in order to explain what that or represent what that intention is. So... That's the first thing, is to assume, to assume that an author actually knows more than I do, which is a kind of humility that most people don't have these days. And then in the encounter with that, I'm, I'm having the confidence that not only can people talk to one another, but that works or time periods can talk across generations, that I can read Milton and pull him into my present, that I can read Shakespeare and pull him into my present. Now, people will say, certain advocates of difference will say, well, how can you read Milton? He was a white, patriarchal, whatever. And he was. And his, he was a sexist. Um, you can read things. You can learn from people you don't agree with everything about. So I can read Milton. Yeah, he is white and patriarchal. He's also a Christian. And I'm a Jew. And still I can go back to that text and make myself present to what he means and also bring it into, bring it into my present. I can understand my world through having avail the availability of that other world. You know, the famous philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said that God is dead. And it's not God that's dead. It's poetry that's dead. Is when you want to put God on a spreadsheet, it's not going to work out too well. And we see this with COVID-19. We see ways in which people are trying to take this traumatic event, which we do not understand, and to make it understandable. I mean, the worst and most obvious of these are the religious ones. I've seen signs in the neighborhood in which I live. Why are we experiencing COVID-19? Take a guess out there in the studio audience. So the first one was, you guessed it, cell phones. Cell phones in the Haredi community. And the second one, uh, this might have edged out for first, is that women are not wearing their, their wigs, their wigs with sufficient modesty. We're not, we're not even talking about their clothing. Their wigs are not being worn with a sufficient modesty. What that would actually mean, I do not know. So that's a way in which um, Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, begins with his saying that he is going to justify the ways of God to man. Why, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's what these explanations do. You want to know why? It's, it's, it's because of the wigs. It's because of the cell phones. And the impulse behind trying to understand or domesticate coronas to make us feel better. And we have... I think most alarmingly, religious figures 
who let's say in our culture they're in charge of it they're in charge of the inexpressible they're in charge of the divine they're in charge of the immutable right and what are they doing they're totally domesticating it within the very simple story that they're telling and that very simple story has m much much more to do with politics than it does with religion those bad theodicies that it's what it is to justify the ways of god to man those bad theodicies are really designed to make people not think don't think about the infinite because some people you say the poetry is political but poetry isn't political in being polemical and having a message poetry is political in making you question the way you look at the world poetry does not settle for simplicity poets what what and here coming back to scientists what scientists will reject as contradiction poets will embrace as paradox what does not appear on the scientific grid that's almost where poetry begins and and it's really through the encounter with works of the past i met a very high administrator in the university come to my shakespeare lecture no time i mean not even i mean of course he had no time but Reading Shakespeare is not something you do as a hobby on the side. When you and one of the things I think we've noted, my students especially, is during this period we actually are receptive enough to read because things really suck and this really is traumatic and we really don't know what's going on and because of that we break out of our habitual routines of seeing things and because of that we can we we we're not embarrassed I think people are embarrassed. I don't know if this is true for everybody. Um, it's an American thing. I wonder if it's an Israeli thing as well or secular thing. They're embarrassed to say that I, I love reading. I love reading. Or they're embarrassed to say, you know, I have this, there's this experience that goes beyond the language that I habitually use. I think for me, for me personally, I had a little bit of that embarrassment. And with COVID and seeing my students in front of the screens who are um, totally dedicated and they sit there for eight hours a day, making themselves present. Um, it's okay to love reading. I confessed to some graduate students that I never learned how to read until I was in graduate school. Once you learn how to read, you begin to understand that the world that you thought, which was transparently evident, is an already interpreted world. And that already interpreted world comes into your world as if that's the world. And really, human freedom is the freedom to interpret, to engage with the world, to understand it, and make it my own. Will my Milton be the same as everybody else's Milton? No. But through that encounter with the world, that engaged presence, I begin to interpret, and through interpreting, I create myself. I said before that the, the, the greatest scientists of every generation will not share the simplistic ideas about knowledge and interpretation that practitioners have. Practitioners don't need to have complex ideas about theories of knowing and epistemology, um, which is a theory of knowing. The greatest scientists, and just think of Einstein or think of the mathematician Poincare, both of them talked about when they were lost, 
that for them what released them into knowledge was play, was putting things together that they had not thought about putting together before. Picasso talked about himself as a cut and paste man. Now that's a very strange metaphor for us to transfer to the scientists, but for theoretical physicists, um, and especially uh, during the time of the Quantum Revolution, they almost always thought of their work as a form of play, as a form of, of, of moving pieces around in order to find their way. And I think that's what being, that's what humanities reminds us of, the, impor the importance of reading, interpretation, and also play. Thank you for tuning in to Bardat, the Barilan University podcast app. Barilan's top lecturers and researchers have chosen the most intriguing topics in their areas of expertise. The result, a fine podcast library available to you. Enjoy listening and learning. Bardat, Barilan University's podcast app. Edited by Dor Komet, chief producer, Ori Toledano. <laughs>